This is RadioThen.network, and in just a moment, we'll present a special program devoted to Golden Radio Memories for you. Though comedy and drama provided the warm family memories of those golden years, the dramatic punctuation that underscored our lives and helped to change the course of destiny came from the news bureaus of radio. To take you through those years in a kaleidoscopic living history, I've asked a friend of mine whose voice has been a welcome visitor into millions of American homes to take over. Frank Knight has been the voice of the Longines Symphonette for over three decades. And before that, his special vantage point as chief announcer for the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship station, WOR in New York City, makes him uniquely qualified to recall with us the momentous and some not-so-momentous moments in history. Frank, it's nice to be with you again. Thank you, Jack. Listening to those great memories of radio brought back the names of so many of my friends that it's hard to know where to begin. Radio recognized its obligations very early. In 1920, station KDKA, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, broadcast presidential election returns for the very first time in history. It is now apparent that the Republican ticket of Harding and Coolidge is running well ahead of Cox and Roosevelt. At the present time, Harding has selected more than 16 million votes against some 9 million for the Democrats. We'll give you the state vote in just a moment. But first, we'd like to ask you to let us know if this broadcast is reaching you. Please drop us a card, address station KDKA, Westinghouse, East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The first transcontinental radio network broadcast was of a Rose Bowl game in January of 1927. In the same year, Lindbergh's triumphant return from France was broadcast coast-to-coast from Washington, D.C. The President of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, introduced Lindy to Congress. As President of the United States, I bestow the distinguished flying cross upon Colonel... Charles A. Lindbergh. I arrived in the Bourget Paris. At every gathering, at every meeting I attended, were the same words. You have seen the affection of the people of France for the people of America demonstrated to you. Take back with you this message from France and Europe to the United States of America. Thank you. About this time, the newspapers were beginning to recognize radio as competitor for the advertising dollar. Do you remember the joke making the rounds? What is the difference between newspapers and radio? Well, you can wrap a herring in a newspaper. Amos and Andy were using topical subjects then, and this was their comment on a certain election. Uh, who is the man that is running against each other this year election time? Explain that to me. Herbert Hoover, 
Vesuvius Al Smith. Herbert Hoover, Vesuvius Al Smith, huh? Yeah. Another thing I'm going to ask you. I, I don't know if I was going to be a Democrat or a Republican, you know it? How did your old man vote? Oh, my papa, you mean? Yeah, that's it. Oh, papa used to always vote for the uh, Democrats. Well, then if I was in your place, I would vote for the Republicans. How come? Because I never know your old man to do nothing right in his life. And when the stock market broke in 1929, another of your favorite comedians, Eddie Cantor, took the opportunity to laugh at his own losses. If the market takes another slump, I know thousands and thousands of married men who will have to leave their sweethearts and go back to their wives. Nowadays, when a man walks into a hotel and requests a room on the 19th floor, the clerk asks him for sleeping or jumping. As the time for a new presidential election drew near, there were many very fundamental issues. The stock market crash and the resulting depression. The question of prohibition and the evils that had brought on the scene. One of the greatest orators of his time, legendary in his pursuit of sin, Fanatic in his determination that prohibition should remain the law of the land was ex-baseball player Billy Sunday. The return of the saloon would mean the overthrow of civilization in our land. It was because I didn't want our boys to die drunkards that I fought and fight. I'm going to live long enough to see America so dry, you'd have to prime a man before it can spit. And I'll fight the saloon from Hawaii to Hoboken. And I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. And I'll fight it as punch it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I have a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. The first United States president to take full advantage of the growing power of radio was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Starting with his own first inaugural address, FDR took to radio no less than 20 times in the first nine months of office. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Taxes have risen. Our ability to pay has fallen. Government of all kinds is faced by serious curtailment of income. The means of exchange are frozen in the current of trade. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no market for their produce, and the savings of many years and thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence 
and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. As FDR turned his strength towards solving our domestic problems, the rumble of trouble began in Europe. New voices from afar became familiar to listeners in the United States as radio began to shrink the world. Against the background of disturbance in Europe, a thoughtful radio voice warned the United States to watch the East. In 1935, Edwin C. Hill, a crack NBC commentator, had this to say. Still another of those useless, troublemaking naval armament reduction conferences gets underway in London with prospects already darker than your cellar at midnight. Good old Uncle Sam, always hopeful, tells Great Britain and Japan that he would like to welcome a 20% naval cut. John Bull shuts up like the clam of commerce, with Hitler building up a navy for Germany... And Mussolini on the warpath doesn't suit him at all. But Japan speaks out with an emphatic no. As an American, I admire the idealism and good faith of our government. But sometimes I do wish that our beloved Uncle Sam would stay at home and mind his own business. Someday, we may get our fingers burned. Mind our own business, speak softly, carry a big stick, and keep an eye on Japan as far as this side of the Pacific is concerned. Clyde Pangborn, famous flying man, testifies before a congressional committee that, in his opinion, America is threatened by only one enemy, and that enemy is Japan. He testifies that Japan has perfected man-operated aerial torpedoes in which the plane and the bomb are one, an instrument deadlier than any known weapon, certain to bring death to the operator. Yet thousands of Japanese, says Pangborn, have already volunteered for the honor of dying as pilots of these infernal weapons of infernal modern warfare. 1935 also saw case closed, written on the official records of the famed Lindbergh kidnapping case, three years after Lindy's infant son was kidnapped and killed. The National Broadcasting Company presents a special bulletin from the Press Radio News. Trenton, New Jersey. Bruno Richard Hauptmann was electrocuted at 8.47 tonight for the murder of the Lindbergh baby. This bulletin is from the Press Radio Bureau. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Nothing to fear, but fear itself, became the classic rallying cry of that recovery era. Radio carried that message of hope to homes throughout the nation. It has become a classic. Radio broadcasts of lasting impact became more frequent during the turbulent 30s as the world underwent change after change. One classic broadcast with an impact of intensely personal nature occurred when the dream of the dirigible crashed with the Hindenburg in Lakehurst, New Jersey. The description by Herb Morrison and his engineer Jimmy Nelson belongs in this collection because never again has a disaster been broadcast right from the spot, from the first second when fate took a hand in what was to have been a routine news broadcast. We both flew down from Chicago yesterday afternoon aboard one of the giant new 21-passenger flagships of American Airlines. 
It took us only three hours, 55 minutes, to fly nonstop from Chicago to New York. When we landed at Newark, we found another flagship of American Airlines waiting to take us to Lakers with our equipment when we were ready to go. And incidentally, American Airlines is the only airline in the United States which makes connections with the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg left Frankfurt, Germany, yes, uh, Tuesday evening, rather, at 7.30, their time. And for better than two and a half days, they've been speeding through the skies over miles and miles of water here to America. Now, they're coming in to make a landing of the Zeppelin. I'm going to step out here and uh, cover it from the outside. So, as I move out, we'll just stand by a second. Well, here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. We're out now, outside of the hangar. And what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mass. The mighty diesel motors just roared, the propellers biting into the air and throwing it back into a gale-like whirlpool. No wonder this great floating palace can travel through the air at such a speed with these powerful motors behind it. Now, the field that we thought active when we first arrived has turned into a moving mass of cooperative action. The landing crews have rushed to the posts and spots in order to being passed along, and last-minute preparations are being completed for the moment we have waited for so long. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather, riding as though it was mighty, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The ship is no doubt busting with activity, as we can see. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows, looking down at the field ahead of them, getting their glimpse of the mooring mass. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and uh, it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, flashed up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's flashing. It's flashing. It's flashing. Terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's flashing. Twenty. Oh, Four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flames rising to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. All the humanity and all the passengers screaming around it. I don't do it. I can't talk to people. The friends are out there. It's a, it's, it's a, oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just like they're massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and scream. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I, I, I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back again. I've... I've, I've sort of recovered from the terrific explosion and the terrific crash that occurred just as it was being pulled down to the mooring mast. The terrible amount of uh, hydrogen gas in it just caused the, the tail surface broke into flame first. Then there was a terrific explosion, and that followed by the burning of the nose and the crashing nose into the ground, and everybody tearing back at freight neck speed to get out from underneath it because it was over the people at the time it burst into flames. Now, whether it fell on the people who were witnessing it, we do not know. But as it exploded, they rushed back. And now it's smoking a terrific black smoke floating up into the sky. The flames are still leaping maybe 30, 40 feet from the ground, the entire 811 feet length of it. 
They're frantically calling for uh, ambulances and things. The wires are being hu- humming with uh, activity. And uh, I've, I've lost my, my breath several times during this exciting moment here. And will you pardon me just a moment? I'm not going to stop talking. I'm just going to swallow several times until I can keep on. I should imagine that the nose is not uh, more than 500 feet or maybe 700 feet from the mooring mass. They have dropped two ropes, and uh, whether or not uh, some spark or something set it on fire, we don't know, or whether something pulled loose on the inside of the ship causing a spark and causing it to explode in the tail surface. But everything crashed to the ground, and there's not a possible chance of anybody being saved. I wish I could stop in just a moment and uh, see if I can get my breath again. And Charlie, if you'll fade it out just a minute, I'll come back with more description, ladies and gentlemen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back again. I-, I raced down to the burning ship, and just as I walked up to the ship over, climbed over the picket line, I met a man coming out. Uh, days, days, he couldn't find his way. I grabbed a hold of him. It's Philip Mangone. Philip Mangone, A-N-G-O-N-E, of New York. Philip Mangone. He's burned terribly in the hands, and he's burned terribly in the face. His eyebrows and all his hair is burned off, but he's walking and talking plainly and distinctly, and he told me he jumped. He jumped with other passengers. Now, there's a Mr. Spay. It sounds like Spay. We're not sure of it. And uh, he also got out. Now, it is my sincere hope the majority of the passengers jumped when it came close to the ground, according to what Mr. Mangone told me. He says, thank God he jumped, and we say thank God for him also. You've been listening to another of the old-time radio series, Golden Radio Memories. Memories for you from RadioThen.network. <laughs>